Well, I want to welcome you guys. I'm Brian, one of the pastors here. And we are, right now, we're kind of in the middle of a, a series that we started a few weeks ago in the book of Ezra. So if you guys wouldn't mind, why don't you take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ezra, is where we're at. And uh, we are, as James says, coming close, coming quickly to Easter. Excited about it this year. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to, last, like James mentioned, we've, past few years, we've done it at the pack. We've just done one big service. This year, we're going to do uh, two services here rather than at the pack, and that was loud. Um, and we're going to just, we'll have a great time, have dinner afterwards, some lunch afterwards, whatever, and uh, hang out, have fun, fellowship with each other, kick back. It should be a good time. I encourage you guys, um, bring family members, you know. It's a great place to have uh, any type of holidays, and we always like to encourage people to bring family on out to our, our Easter celebration. It's a way for people, especially maybe those that don't know Christ, to come hear the gospel and uh, just see what Christianity is about, hopefully. Hopefully get a good flavor of Jesus. And uh, so I encourage you guys, bring some family, friends, whoever, come on out to, should be a good time that day. We are also encouraging, especially those of you from this service, any of you that would consider uh, committing to going to first service, uh, that would be great. Um, that would help to possibly even things out a little bit between the two services. Um, should be good. Okay, that's about it. Uh, as far as Ezra, where we're at, I'm going to give you guys a very fast little background for those of you that might be new here, or for those of you that have not been paying attention for the past few weeks, I'll give you a little bit of a background. And uh, what we've been doing so far is we've been going through the book of Ezra. Ezra has been basically a story, it's a narrative about the children of Israel at a period of time. Uh, we call it the post-exile, meaning after the exile. Uh, the reason why they were in exile in the first place is they were living in their prospective country of, of Israel. There was the north and the south kingdoms. Uh, but what had happened was Israel had basically fallen out of relationship with God on a national level. As a nation, they were no longer really responding to, uh, lovingly responding to, and obediently following God. And what had happened was, you know, just like us, uh, if you're a Christian, there's times when our lives get busy, we forget about God. That God is gracious because He oftentimes brings people into our lives as God did bring into their lives these prophets. They would come, they would prophesy, they would speak forth God's Word, and they would ho- hopefully bring them back. Oftentimes they were calls to repentance, to say to the people of Israel to stop continuing in sin, to stop continuing in disobedience, to return to God. But what had happened was there was sort of a repeated disobedience in a long direction, as opposed to a repeated obedience in a long direction. It was disobedience on a regular basis. And rather than heeding the voice of the prophets, which was really equivalent to heeding the voice of God, they continued to disobey God. And God promised that He'd bring about consequences for their disobedience. And in this case, the consequences for their disobedience was God was going to raise up a nation that was going to bring judgment upon them. In this case, for the north, it was a nation called the Babylon or called Babylon or the Babylonians. They came in and they basically removed the people of Israel from their land. They had a walled city and cities back then that had walls around them were very strong. They were fortified. Uh, they were cities that were oftentimes difficult to take down because of the wall of defense that was around them. Their city was destroyed. The walls were broken down as well as their temple which every ancient culture, every ancient civilization that had a temple, uh, not just simply a site, 
to worship, but an actual temple, um, were oftentimes elevated in sort of the social as well as economic scale because they, were, they had greater definition, greater identification as not only being a nation that had a walled city, meaning they were strong militarily, but also a temple, which meant that they were strong religiously. They had a good God that loved them, that took care of them, that honored them, and that's basically what a temple meant. So when their city was destroyed and their temple was in ruins, that sent a very strong message to the rest of the world that Israel's done. Israel's over with. Uh, you can imagine the type of morale uh, destruction that had happened shortly after that. Uh, we can read in certain of the Psalms they talk about while they were there in the city of Babylon by the different rivers that were there in, Euphra- uh, there in Babylon, that they would sit by these rivers. They would hang their harps up on the little trees thereby, and they would weep. One of the Psalms says, you know, we hung our harps uh, up by the rivers of Babylon, and we would just weep. When we remember Jerusalem, when we remember the state uh, that we were, and consider where we've fallen. So it was a really difficult time morally and nationalistically for the people of Israel. Seventy years go by, and God moves. He stirs in the heart of a new king, not Nebuchadnezzar, but a new king, a guy by the name of uh, Cyrus. And Cyrus has sort of an impulse, led by God, to release the people of Israel. To basically say, listen, you guys have been exiles in our land. We're asking you, encouraging you, go back. Go back to your homelands. We're releasing you. There's no reason for you to be here. So they essentially released the Jews to go back into their homeland. They're, at this point, their scholars believe there was between 1 million to 2 million people, Jews, there in exile. But we're told, according to the book of Ezra, only 50,000 actually returned. Their intention for returning was to go back and basically uh, repatriate their country, to essentially reestablish themselves as a nation. Um, they realized in order for them to do it right this time, that the first thing that needed to be done was when they returned back to this ruinous city, was rather than to rebuild the walls, to reestablish sort of a social economic system, the first and most important thing for them to do, nationalistically, was to reestablish the worship of God, which is what they did. Ezra takes place before Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes along and he restores and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. But Ezra takes place before Nehemiah. And the very first thing that the Jews do when they come back into the land of Israel was to rebuild their temple. That was their intention. So 50,000 heroes, right? These are heroes. You can imagine. These are people that basically forsook their lives there in Babylon. They had jobs in Babylon. They had careers in Babylon. They had life in Babylon family in Babylon, and they left all that to come back into a place that probably looked a lot like New Orleans six months after the flooding. It was nothing but ruins, destruction, devastation, therefore they needed to restart, rebuild life from the bottom up, which meant they needed to raise crops, they needed to build houses, they needed to take care of grandma, their kids needed to be taken care of so that nobody died. When winters came, they had to deal with winters. When springtime came, they had to plant crops. When harvest came, they were out busy making sure they had food. And what had happened was once they began, once they first moved, the very first first six months, they laid the foundation stones of the temple. It was just the most amazing thing. The temple stones were laid. They built an altar. They were starting to worship sacrifices to God. And what had happened was 
uh, immediately came this massive attack, opposition. People were rising up and saying, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, there's negative PR campaigns going on. People writing blogs about them, sending nasty emails to Zerubbabel. Yeshua was getting death threats. I mean, horrible things were happening. And what had taken place was because they were just people like you and I, right? Regular people, but they just were on mission. They, they recognized our goal, our purpose is to glorify God. By doing this, we're going to build a church. And what had happened was, because of the oppression, because of the adversity, because of the difficulty, they pulled back. Rather than keep moving forward, they pulled back. They began to build their houses. They began to sort of ease into comfortable lifestyles. Um, and, and again, we pointed this out a couple weeks ago. This is very natural. I mean, I can absolutely understand completely why they did what they did. I can completely understand it. I've got two daughters. I've got a wife I love. And, and what happens is I, there are times, to be frank with you, I watch my wife go through the stresses she goes through, watching me go through the stresses I go through. And there's always this desire in our hearts of like, we want to protect our kids, but at the same time we've got to be careful because there's, there's a certain amount that we've got to help them to handle and deal with, but it's easy to want to just pull back, to just build a life for yourself. And that's not just ministry. That's just life in general. And what happened was, for the next 16 years, they began to just build their house. They began to build room additions to their house. They began, to moving, began moving from one plasma TV to five in every room, making sure every house had cable television. They didn't just have, you know, a Yaris. They needed to have like a Humvee. And they just kept moving up the scale of life, trying to make things better for themselves, graduating basically from one economic sort of social plateau to the next. And by the time you get to chapter 5, we're told at the beginning of the chapter, God raises up two prophets. Their names are Haggai and Zechariah. And basically, they come on the scene, and they turn to the people of Israel, and they're like, listen, the problem is, you guys are too busy worrying about your life. You have forgotten mission. You've forgotten why you're here. You've forgotten why you left Babylon, traveled, you know, some hundreds of miles across the desert. You've forgotten why you moved into this wilderness. You've forgotten why you built houses in the first place. Because they were just to be sheltered so that during the day while you're working for God and building the temple and serving on mission, they were to provide a shelter for you. You've forgotten all this. And the prophet Haggai basically says, didn't it ever come across your thinking that maybe, maybe the reason why in the midst of you constantly planting more and more seed every single year, every time you guys go to harvest, you get less and less grain in proportion to the seed that you plant? Have you ever dawned on you that maybe one of the reasons why you keep working really hard and the harder you work, the natural expectation is to get more money? More money would be, mean more free time, more goods, more gadgets, more stuff. Has it ever dawned on you that maybe one of the reasons why your bank account is in a deficit right now is because God's trying to you know, knock on your heart and say, hello, uh, did you forget about mission? Did you forget about me? That's, that's my paraphrase of Haggai, right? 
And finally, they listen to the message of Haggai, and they say, we failed. We've, we've been more concerned about ourselves. We've been more concerned about our lifestyles. We've been more concerned about padding and establishing greater comfort for ourselves. Is there anything wrong with having comfortable lifestyles? No. All right, is there anything wrong with driving a Hummer? I wish I had one. All right, there's nothing wrong with those things, all right? But what I'm trying to say is that when these things become sort of the, the, the things that we passionately do everything we can, realign our lives to get ourselves into these places, just to secure this stuff, it's very easy for us to become worshipers of a God of comfort rather than worshipers of the living God. And that's what was happening to these people. Haggai prophesies, they respond, they get back to work. As they begin to get back to work, they just make choices that in spite of the difficulty that might come, they just realize we've got to do what God's called us to do. So they find themselves getting back on mission and the work starts prospering. So what happens in chapter 5 is this guy by the name of Tatanai, he's sort of the uh, uh, official uh, leader representing Persian interests abroad. All right, that's his job. And he realizes that uh, this group of Jewish exiles who left Babylon that are now sort of establishing or reestablishing a life in Jerusalem, all of a sudden, these guys start building this massive structure in the center of town. And you can imagine Tatanai's thinking, what are these people doing? All of a sudden, you know, everything's changed, something's happened. These people are now, they went from, you know, being so focused on building their houses, now they're building the temple. Why is this happening? What's taking place? Who's giving them building permits? Who's giving them permission? So Tatanai approaches uh, Zerubbabel, the leader, and he says, who's giving you guys permission to do this? Why are you doing this? And his concern, I think, was uh, a valid concern. I mean, the thought of, like, rebuilding your temple. Next, you're going to probably rebuild your wall. If you rebuild your wall, you're probably going to rebuild an army. You've got to protect your wall. You've got to protect your interests. And if you're going to rebuild an army, does this mean that you're going to break off from Persia? Are you going to revolt? Are you going to fight? So you can imagine Tatanai's a little bit concerned, right? So he tries to dissuade them from moving forward in the work. But again, chapter 5 is amazing. You get this amazing response from the leaders. They're like, listen, we are servants of God. That's who we are. We're nobody great. We're just servants of a very great God, and we're just doing what we should have been doing for the past 16 years and failed to do. So... Tatanai is like, oh, i got to double check, make sure this is all right. So I'm going to send a letter back to Persia. And we're going to wait response to find out what happens. You can imagine it's probably this turnover time might have taken a month, maybe two months, time, three months, so, so something like that. And fortunately, they were still allowed to work in the meantime. And, uh, and then word gets back, and that's where we kind of tap into chapter 6 and kind of start reading from there, verse 1. So chapter 6, verse 1 is where we kind of pick up the story. It says this, Then Darius, the king, made a decree that a search was to be made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. So they're basically cross-referencing the statement that came from Zerubbabel just to make sure that everything Zerubbabel was true. Because if it's not true, then the king of Persia would have sent back some sort of warrior powerhouse people to fight against them to keep them from building their temple, right? That doesn't work too good when you've got someone who's trying to bring about a revolt. So, uh, so that's what he's kind of trying to find out. Verse 2 it says, And in 
uh, Ecbatana, the capital that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which there was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus King, so this is a scroll that was being read. Now, this is kind of an amazing thing. Okay? They, they, they go to these royal archives. And you've got to think about this, right? It's in the desert, probably somewhere in Media, probably somewhere either northern Iraq or northern Iran area. It's kind of the area where it's at. Imagine a cave. Now, these records would have been written on, uh, archaeologists have discovered, they're on what's called cylinders. So they would have been sort of like this uh, pottery-type cylinder where there would have been these inscriptions. And uh, they would have stored these things in these um, caves. And they probably would have been guarded by big, massive warriors, right? Big spears. And so what happens is they finally, they're able to find this stuff. They find this actual document. And uh, what happens is Darius is now going to respond. It says a record in the first year of Cyrus, king of Cyrus, the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt in the place where sacrifices were offered. And let its foundations be rebuilt or retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits. And with three layers of stones and a layer of timber, let a cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem, be brought back to Babylon and be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place, you shall put them in the house of God. Okay, so take a look at the next uh, slide, and you'll see kind of a, uh, an artist's rendition of the temple. Probably something similar to this, maybe not as ornate, but just imagine, this is what they built. This is what they were to build. Um, this was basically based upon the decree of Cyrus. He says, let them build a house to their God. The house is to be 45 feet high, 30 feet wide, 90 feet in length. Kind of like a just big box like that, sort of like that. And uh, so this was what they were to build. And uh, not only that, but he says, let it be paid for out of the treasury. We'll pick up the bill. That's kind of what he's saying. We'll take care of the tab. And not only that, let's give back everything that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from them. So when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, some, uh, some 70 or so years prior, when he came through Israel, what he did is he ransacked, the temple, and there's a lot of golden items that were in there, golden utensils. And so all of these things were basically brought into Babylon, and they were essentially stored. All right? You ever see the movie, like, National Treasure? One of those movies? My kids really like those things. It's like modern-day um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, except that has Nicolas Cage. I don't really like him. He's not a great actor. But anyways, you, just, you can imagine, when they're searching for this treasure, they find it, right? And it's gigantic. Gigantic treasure, storehouse. It's kind of what I imagine. Like, uh, here you got Nebuchadnezzar, and he's got all of this gold and silver and these utensils and items from um, all sorts of other nations that he conquered, but also from the nation of Israel. So here's what happens. Is, uh, as, as Darius is reading this decree from Cyrus, you know, written some 70 years prior, he begins to realize, you know what, or, or not 70 years, about 17 years or so prior, he begins to realize, okay, this is legit. What the Jews claim to be doing is really based upon this decree that was written and that we need to basically support what's happening here. Okay, take a look at about verse 6. It says, Now, therefore, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetharbaz and I, and your associates and the governors, who are in the province beyond the river, beyond, uh, he says, to keep away. So I love this. He's basically like, listen, uh, here's my little 
addendum to you guys. Stay away from them. All right, this is what Darius says to uh, Shether Boz and I and uh, Tat and I and these other officials and leaders that are representing Persian interests abroad. Basically writes this little post-it note to them says, keep away from them. Don't mess with them. Don't talk to them. Don't touch them. Just let them do what they were already doing. Verse 7. Let the work of the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God, that the cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, burnt offerings, or for the burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require or have need, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God, to the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now here's what's happening. Uh, king Darius is like, listen, we're going to fund this whole thing. Right? We're going to give you guys a big blank check. You're going to fill it out for whatever amount. And on top of that, we're going to give you all the sheep, all the bulls, all the rams, all the oil, all the wheat, all the wine, whatever it is that you guys need. The only string that we have attached to government funding is this. You've got to pray for us. Right? I love that. It's just like, listen, you've got to pray for me and you've got to pray for my boys. Why? Because every king wants a monarchy that lasts forever, right? He wants a kingdom that's just going to go on and on and on. So it's like the only request that I, King Darius, make is that you Jews are going to keep praying for me and praying for my sons so that our kingdom goes on and on and on. All right? Good deal. That's a great deal. Now, can you imagine this? Here you are. You've gone through all that we've already described up in this point. It's been tough. I mean, think about how tough it's been. Winters. You're either sleeping outside in a tent during winter. It snows in Jerusalem. Okay? They get bad weather in Jerusalem. During the summer, it can get up to 100, 110, 115. Very hot. They literally are in the desert. Okay? They are subject to very extreme conditions. And on top of that, imagine if you've got children. You're struggling, you're suffering because you're watching maybe your children go through great hardships. You're losing a grandma here or there. You're finding yourself under not only just major personal turmoil because of the elements, but you also got people that are doing these pub, you know, anti-publicity uh, campaigns against you. They're gossiping about you. They're attacking you. They're making you look foolish. Uh, they're spreading rumors about you. They're giving death threats to you and your family. It's hard. It's very tough. But you know, somewhere in your heart, you realize, I've got to do what God's called me to do. I've got to do it. I've got to be obedient to what God's called me to do. And God has not led us from Babylon, from comfort, into Jerusalem for more comfort. God has led us from Babylon into Jerusalem to be on mission, to serve the living God, to give our lives to the living God, to even make sacrifices for our living God. It's not time for us to make a life of comfort and ease for ourselves. And they make, somewhere along the line, they make this distinction in their mind that's just like, we've got to do it. We might pay a price for it. We might lose our lives for it. 
Our children might die. We might lose our money. We may go broke. We might not have food. We might become sick. We might die in storms. We might freeze to death during the winters. We might not have crops that come in. We might find ourselves becoming faint. Our knees might buckle. Our voices might grow faint. Our hands might become weary. We've got to do what God's called us to do. Guys, the bottom line is for a lot of us, it's way easier for us just to pull out. It's way easier for us just to pull out. Especially when the heat gets turned up. It's easier for us to just pull back, to move into a life of ease. Some of you know exactly what this is like. I've watched over the years as people, maybe who either A, first just kind of get right with God. Maybe they haven't been walking with Christ. They just make a commitment to follow the Lord, to love the Lord with all their heart. Or maybe there's somebody that hasn't been a Christian or they've been a Christian for a while, but for some reason they've been like the children of Israel for 15, 16 years. Everything's been on hold. They haven't gotten really serious about God. And the moment they begin to make these decisions to say, I'm going to follow the Lord, everything comes against them. It gets hard. Right? You lose your job. You can't make your mortgage payments. Right? Family comes against you. Or temptations arise. Right? I mean, you might be somebody that's you know, let's say if you're, I've talked, I've watched guys, okay, guys that have been like single, right? And in their mind, like, I'm going to get my life right with God. The moment they get their life right with God, maybe guys that aren't like too good looking. And then after they get their life right with God, girls are knocking on their door like, hey, let's go out. It's like all of a sudden they're like noticed. I'm like, dude, that's spiritual, bro, because it ain't physical. <laughs> all right? I'm just telling you, it's spiritual. Satan is trying to trap you. If you buy in, you will fall down. And the enemy loves to try to attack. That's one of the ways in which he does that, is to just bring about these attacks to get us to veer off the trail. That's what happens. And we find ourselves just not doing what God calls us to do. But then the Spirit of God moves, just like He did in the people of Israel's life, through the prophets speaking, the Word of God. That's how our lives are are oftentimes reconnected with God. God speaks to us. We respond. I honestly believe, probably even some of you here today, maybe the Lord is speaking to your heart saying, stop avoiding me. I'm a good God that wants to give you joy. Wants to give you life. It will not be easy though. That's what happened with these guys. They moved forward in spite of all the difficulty that was going to be ahead of them. So we've got to do it. We've got to be obedient to God. And in the midst of their obedience, one of the most amazing, unforeseen blessings comes into their lives is they get the word back. Listen, everything's funded, guys. You don't have to worry about a dime. Don't worry about the food. Don't worry. Again, for 16 years, these people have been planting crops, expecting big return as Haggai says, but every time they come, nothing comes out. Maybe they get 10% of a crop. And now finally, the grace of God shows up and says, listen, everything is on me. I'm taking care of you all. Every funding, every terms of money, in terms of oil, in terms of food, in terms of whatever it is, it's all being taken care of by Darius the king. Can you imagine? It's just amazing that would have been. Just the sense of joy that must have gone through their minds at that moment. Verse 11 says, And also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, 
that a beam should be pulled out of his house. So here's Darius basically reinforcing, saying, here's what's got to be done. And if this is not done, or if my words are altered or modified or changed or tweaked a little bit, edited, here's what's going to happen. He says, uh, let a decree be made that if anybody alters his edict, a beam will be pulled out of his house and he will be impaled on it. All the guys are like, mm, that's awesome. And his house shall be made a dunghill. Doubly awesome. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to, uh, to alter this or to destroy the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done, with all diligence. You just got to love that. It's just like God is in this. He's using this pagan king, Darius, to not only provide all the funding, but to guarantee protection, right? To give all the money they need, to give all the food they need, to provide everything they need. And I love this because they've really just started out with no guarantees other than we're just supposed to do what God's called us to do and we've been unfaithful. We've been living for ourselves for 16 years, the prophet rebuked us, we repent, we get back right with God, and all of a sudden, as God sees their obedience, God just blesses their obedience in ways that are just beyond comprehension. Verse 13, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Boaz, and I, and their associates, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they finished their building by decree of God. So they finished it. Temple's done. You've got to love this. You know this is written by a guy. Okay? There's no details. This is like, oh yeah, by the way, the temple's done. You know, it's just like, hey, what did you guys do today? Oh, we finished the temple. Really? That's, uh, what else did you do? Uh, after that, we killed a bunch of animals. All right? You know, it's just like the most minimal. I mean, this is one of the most amazing things that ever happened in the Old Testament. It's like, what happened? Temple's done. All right? It's so funny. It's like, this is the difference between my wife and I. It drives, I mean, I love my wife. It drives, my wife and I always have these funny conversations where I, like, I ask her a question. She gives me every little detail. It's like, oh, someone's had a baby. That's awesome. She's like, well, what's their height? What's, how much do they weigh? What's their name? Oh, what's their middle name? I don't know what their middle name is. It's a boy. That's all I know. That's all that I know. Okay? It's all I need to know. I don't need any more details beyond that. It's a boy and they've got blue on. All right? God forbid they have mint green. All right? But it's a boy. All right? That's it. And, and it's funny. I mean, Ezra's just like, hey, we built the temple. It's done. All right? That's what happens. Then it goes on. Gives us a little bit more detail after that. It says, and uh, we prospered, and then all this was done by the decree of the God of Israel, by the decree of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, the sixth month of the year of the reign of Darius. So he gives us a date as to when this whole entire thing was done. Um, I want you to notice something real fast before we kind of move on, is he makes a statement, he says, all of this was done by decree of God. I find this really fascinating. Because if you want to kind of dissect it a little bit further, he goes further to say it's done by the decree of God and the decree of Cyrus and the decree of Darius and Artaxerxes. I mean, it's God who had done the work, but he used these men to also do it. Okay, here's another question. Who actually built the temple? Was it God? 
and did God snap his fingers and it arrived? You know what's funny? I, nothing like this is ever done in the Old Testament or the New by God snapping his fingers. The, the curious thing for me is that whenever God wants to get a work done or get something done, the way in which God does it is he raises up people to do it. I hear people sometimes are like, you know, what happened? Or how did this take place? Or how did the church get built? Or how did the ministry get started? And sometimes I think trying to be spiritual will say things like, well, God did it. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. God did it. God built this church. God built this church. Calvary Slow was built by God. That's biblical. Jesus says, I'll build my church. So we know Jesus is really the master builder of the church. But at the same time, I don't think there's anything wrong to point out that the means by which God builds things is people. It's just the means. Never in the Old Testament was there ever a temple built by God snapping his finger or a city erected or established or laws that were used to govern things that were enacted by God snapping his fingers and them just being dead. Now, God could have done that. God could save the world by just speaking and people would be saved. God could do these types of things. In fact, there's only a few things, I think, in the Bible that really talk about, actually, there's a lot of things, but sort of in summary, there's a handful of things that really are explicitly just simply made by God. I mean, everything is done by God, but at the same time, the way that, like the creation, all of creation, God created it all. Six days, created it all. Um, the church. Jesus builds the church, right? New creation. If you're here and you're Christian, you love God, the reason why that happened is not because some guy preached at you and you felt really good inside and you replied, but Jesus saved you. Jesus made you a new creation. Book of Revelation talks about there will be a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens to the earth. Jesus makes that. But everything else really in this life, God does it, but the means by which God does it is you and I. This is really significant to understand this. The reason why I think it's important for us to understand how God does stuff it's because it's easy for us to kind of turn things around in an ultra-spiritual mentality to be like, you know what, hey, the way that nations are going to get saved, the way that hospitals are going to be built to help people, the way that malaria is going to be knocked out or diseases are going to be researched to be destroyed, oh, God will do it. Sure, God will do it. But here's how God does it. You and I. People with the heart of God that just say, I want to be used by God. God, use me. That's the means by which God does it. He takes people like you and I, just normal, regular people like you and I, people that were also like those that were in the book of Ezra. We just say, Lord, we're nothing great. We just want to be servants. And as they work together, as they serve together, as they build together, as they pray together, as they move forward, as the momentum builds, and the work finally gets done, they recognize in the end of the day, it was God who did it. It was God who did it. Maybe through the means of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes and Zerubbabel and Yeshua and 50,000 other people. But at the end of the day, it was God that did it. So look at it this way, guys. God may just want to use you to do things for His glory. That's how God does stuff. That's how the church moves forward. 
That's how Calvary Slow has gotten to where it is today. That's how people are out in the mission field. That's how those people that are out in the mission field are actually being able to be financially supported. That's how we're able to do the things that we do is because we recognize as a body, collectively, we are here to be on mission together, to serve God by serving one another, by loving one another. At the end of the day, we just give God the glory. We just recognize, God, it's you. Because you give us the strength, you give us the abilities, you give us the knowledge, you give us the money. And oftentimes the way that you do that is maybe by stirring the hearts of people. That's what happens. Okay? So as we kind of move on from that, we finish up with the last two verses that we'll look at, verses 15 and 16. It says this, And this was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. So here's what happens. In summary, the house gets built and they celebrate. They're happy. Can you imagine? This is sort of a very climactic moment where finally the house is done. The very thing that these guys have been on mission to accomplish, to get done, has happened. The house is built. The temple's built. They're excited. Everything's been filled with joy that particular day. They just realize God's been with us. But what I want you to notice is that the path to this sense of joy was not easy. It was tough. It was filled with difficulty. It was filled with moments of great pain, commingled with joy. There were moments where they wanted to give up. There were moments where really comfort and ease was way more of a temptation than anything else to pull back, to step away, to allow the knees to buckle, to allow the heart to grow faint, to just simply let the voice go weak and do nothing about it. That is the temptation. That is the current temptation for us to just pull back, to just kind of move with sort of a sense of ease and to not do what God has called us to do. To even look at even things like within our culture, the climate, economically, with regard to how we find ourselves even under pinches, you know, with regard to finances. It's like, be like, mm, I've got more than ever to protect my money because it might not be there tomorrow. And there's a temptation to go overboard. Yes, we need to be wise. Yes, we need to be careful stewards of what God's given to us. But at the same time, there is a tendency to be like, I've got to build a pile of this, sit upon it, not let anybody get into it. I can't spend it. I can't be generous. I can't be able to be a person that gives as gratuitously and happily as I used to. And we find ourselves becoming very protective. And this, these are dangers. It's what happened on Ezra's day. But what I'm trying to say is this is that whenever there's going to be progress, progress will always be sort of this commingling of pain and joy. Pain and joy. There will be seasons of intense hardship. And then there will be sort of a release or a resolve, maybe temporarily, of joy. Then you go back to sort of the minor notes. It's tough. It's hard. You feel like giving up. You feel like throwing in the towel. You feel like pulling back. You feel like retreating. And then all of a sudden, it's like the joy comes again. That's life. That's ministry. It's like oftentimes we look at our lives, and if you are somebody that kind of feels like your life is like in, underneath this constant, perpetual gathering of clouds, it's easy to always think, man, why? Why is my life always in the shadows, always. It just feels like I'm always in the dark. Everything's always so hard. I keep pressing against stuff. 
it's just difficult, it's hard, and there's a tendency, if we don't find God in the midst of that, to begin to blame Him, rather than finding the joy in Him in the midst of even that difficulty, that our joy would not be found predicated upon the circumstances, but it's very possible that oftentimes as the song, the great hymn, talks about that the clouds that gather overhead, sometimes God causes those to break. I think it was William Cooper who wrote, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. Clouds you so often dread are filled with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. Love that. Because that's so oftentimes what life serving God is all about. It's like these punctuated moments where it's really tough, full of pain, full of hardship, full of opposition, full of people backstabbing you, full of people sending you nasty emails. Some of you, especially in ministry, you know what I'm talking about, maybe more or less different, varying degrees, but for the most part, when you find yourself perpetually going against opposition, it can be hard. And then God brings these moments of Joy. And that's what was happening with these guys. But the bottom line is all this is part of progress. Progress in the kingdom of God. Progress moving forward with the work that God has called His church to. You know, for us as a church, you know, things have not always been easy for us as a church. (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to ignore it anymore. I hear it. Um... Things are not always easy for us as a church. I mean, cell phones go off, and, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, but we can move forward, and God does good things, and we see God's blessing on things. And then there's seasons and moments where things just don't always go right. Things don't always go to plan. Right? People get bummed. They get their feelings hurt. They leave. And there's seasons where the people can get really sad or get their feelings hurt. And then there's moments where everything's great. It feels like God's doing great things. You know, the mission is going forward. People are going out to the other ends of the earth and starting churches and doing ministries. And, you know, same thing with even Sunday mornings. It's like, I, I love... <laughs> Jesus just wants me to ignore it. Okay. Um, and, and so what happens is, is it's the same thing in ministry all over the place. But you know the same thing is true in life? It's the same thing in life. I mean, even you, if you're not a Christian... Progress involves sort of this constant commingling of pain and joy. That's what progress comes from. That's what it's all about. I'll give you an example. All right. Say a woman really wants so bad to get pregnant. All right. This woman's married. All right. And this woman wants to get pregnant. So she's begging God for a baby. And finally she gets pregnant, right? So she goes through a season where it's painful, it's hard. She doesn't have a baby. She wants a baby. Now she gets a baby. She's full of joy. All right? So the first trimester, that joy quickly erodes as she's constantly making trips to the bathroom. She's throwing up. She feels sick. She eats crackers, throws up more. All right? That moves into sort of the second trimester where things are a little bit better. They taper off. It's not as bad. You, know, you finally start hearing the heartbeat of the baby. You're like, yes, joy again. All right? And then maybe you find out you know, you get some sort of diabetes and you're like, ah, oh, bummer again. You know, and things can go up and down. It's like this, this rhythmic up and down transition. Sometimes it's full of joy. Sometimes it's full of pain and hardship. 
And then finally comes that day, nine months into it, you have labor. Right? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's not joyful, all right? If you're wondering, you're single, you're a guy, right? You're in school, you're like, what does that mean, labor? It's exactly what it sounds like. It is not fun. A woman, my wife became a different woman for just a window of time. As soon as she had the baby, she was back to being Sherry again. But what happens is labor transforms very sweet, nice person to something different. And, and, and then they have the baby, and it's, it's joy again. Right? It's joy again. That's progress. At the end of the day, there's progress. She got a baby. And that's just the beginning, because now the baby doesn't sleep through the night. Pain again. Baby takes a step, or it says your name, joy. All right? The baby is constantly going to the bathroom. Pain. You're never getting rest. Pain. The baby takes a step. Joy. Right? Uh, you know, and on and on and on it goes. But it's progress, because what's happening on the macro level is that little baby is growing. You guys, that's life. Progress is a continual series of pain and joy. I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. I want to finish with this. Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Paul the Apostle is writing this to a a group of believers. Uh, It's an interesting letter because Paul's actually writing it out of prison. He's in prison. He's in jail. He's been thrown in jail because of his uh, preaching the faith, teaching the gospel. And um, what's happened now is uh, there's people that have been going around talking uh, about Paul. They're spreading gossip and lies and rumors about Paul. Um, And then there's other people that are coming to Paul and saying, Paul, we're loyal to you. Paul, we love you. Paul, we're here for you. There's other people that are really confused because they're looking at Paul and thinking, I thought Paul was a great man of God. If a great man of God he was, why is he in jail? A great man of God he was. Sounds like Yoda. If Paul was a great man of God... Why is he in jail? He was. No, why? Why? And these are the questions they're asking. Why was Paul in prison? I mean, if, if he was such a great guy, if he loved God, why was he in prison? So you can imagine what was happening where all these rumors that were circulating and Paul was sort of feeling it. I mean, it was, he was feeling the pain. Paul talks about how he had been through many sleepless nights. His back was literally a, a scar upon a scar upon a scar because he'd been whipped so many times. Paul had been shipwrecked. Paul had endured uh, moments where all of his stuff was ripped off by thieves. Paul writes about all this stuff. And here he is doing all this for the faith, all this for Jesus, and here he ends up in prison. And on top of that, at insult to injury, people are gossiping about him. There's people preaching the gospel in churches that Paul had visited who are doing the preaching, not because they love the people, because they love money. And they know that if they can preach a good message, have a really good evangelical type of TBN style message afterwards, they can rake the crowd for money, they'll get paid. And Paul says, I am in pain. Because these guys are ripping people off. I'm in pain because people are gossiping about me. I'm in pain because I'm just physically out of juice. And Paul goes on, and as he writes this to these people, about verse 17, he says, the former 
proclaim Christ. These are the people that are going around preaching out of rivalry and not sincerely. He says, they're trying to afflict me and add difficulty to my imprisonment. But in verse 18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he says, I'm just happy that Christ is being proclaimed, even if it's a messed up message done out of bad motivation. I, I, I'm just full of joy. Because somehow even still, God's being talked about. He says, yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here's what Paul's saying is that there's a lot of people that are looking at me in prison. They're just they're finding encouragement because I'm in prison. Not in a bad way, but in a way of like the same way that you and I do. You know, when we, if you're going through something that's really hard in your life, you tend to think that nobody else knows what you're going through. You tend to think nobody else has a clue what is going on in my life, how my heart really feels. No one can identify with me. And then all of a sudden, you're like talking with someone. You overhear a conversation. And you begin to realize, you're not the only one. There's somebody else. And there's this weird sense where you like take comfort in that. Huh, you're in prison just like me. Great. You know, let's play tic-tac-toe. I mean, I think people were kind of looking at Paul and thinking, I'm encouraged. Paul knows what I'm going through. I, 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 I've got a comrade you know, a friend in suffering. Paul goes on. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with the full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, Paul's saying, he's kind of giving his personal testimony while he's in prison to these people that are going through hard times, listening to the message, finding some sense of encouragement through it. Paul says, listen, for me, here's how I summarize it. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he goes on, he says, and to die is gain. He says, if I am, in, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor to you. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul's saying, listen, I'm, I'm having a hard time trying to figure out. Because then he says in about verse 23, I'm hard pressed between two decisions. I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, listen, life is tough, man. It is full of intense pain. So Paul says, I have this desire to depart. The actual Greek word that's used there is a, is a word to basically untie the boat that's tied to the, to the, to the dock, to take the, the, the little anchor, to take the little rope that's tied to the dock, to unleash it, to just let the boat drift away. Paul says, I, I, part of me finds myself in this life. It's tough. My heart's full of pain. My body's full of pain. I'm being gossiped about. It's very, very hard. And I'm having a really hard time because part of me just wants to depart. I want to die. I want to just go to the grave. I want to go be with Jesus. I want to just go be with my Lord, be with my Master, because I know in His presence is fullness of joy forevermore. I want to do that. I know in my heart it's what I would really like and prefer to do. But he says at the same time, I, I also realize for me to stay, it's providing some sense of encouragement to you. And here's what he says, verse 25. He says, I'm convinced of this. I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Here's what Paul's saying. Bottom line is this, is, is my life really isn't my own. It's God's. 
and there's a mission that I'm called to live. There's a mission I'm called to fulfill. Yes, it's full of pain. And Paul's going back and forth in this interplay between real pain that is derived from all the same types of things that we derive pain from, and then the other aspect of this interplay of joy that comes from Jesus. These punctuated moments of intense pain and intense joy, sometimes commingling, sometimes one canceling out the other, but it's this constant movement that's happening ultimately bringing about this demonstration of progress. And Paul's going to move on into chapter 2 and bring about one of the most unbelievable passages of text I think I've ever read. I love it. I still read it to this day and it changes me. It impacts me. Chapter 2 when he talks about, listen, Paul's whole point is that in reality, what I'm doing, I'm asking you to do, but what I'm doing is really exactly what Jesus did. He says, Jesus left this throne in glory, in joy, steps into our world, embraces the humbleness of the manger, finds himself confronted with the frailty of human flesh, finds himself confronted with angry people that are out to be against him, engages the agony of the cross in the difficulty of pain and shame and opens this attack. Over and over and over again, Jesus' life was one of pain. But then comes the resurrection. Joy. Progress. Even Jesus enters into our world to bring about progress in our lives, salvation, which is a commingling of pain and joy. Here's Paul saying, all I'm really doing is what I saw my master do. And that's what I'm calling you to do. There's a progress. There's a work to be done. Our lives are not our own. Let me ask you this. What is your God like? You see, our ability to handle this type of progress, this commingling of pain and joy, is really going to be connected to the type of God that you worship. I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. If your God is static, meaning He doesn't move, He doesn't do anything, He cares only about His own comfort, if that's the type of life you live, which is one that is very shallow, very small, because it's really, it doesn't extend beyond your boundaries. It doesn't extend beyond your personal space. If that's the God that you serve, your joy will be very shallow. And oftentimes your pain will be very deep. But if your God is dynamic, like the God of the Bible, everything that comes from Him is, is an ocean of depth. And Paul says, that's the God I serve. The God that even though I have deep, deep pain, he knows that pain because he stepped into it. He experienced that pain. He felt that pain. He knows that pain. He lived that pain. But he didn't stay there because the cross gave way to the resurrection. And he rose joyfully. And I share in the power of that resurrection. And Paul is saying, that's what keeps me going. The progress in you, in your life, 
And those whom I love, and those whom the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit co-equally love, Paul says, I will continue in the progress, in spite of the pain and the joy, because I have a God that travels with me. I'm done. I don't know what else to say. I'm finished. Chris, why don't you come on up? But I want you to think about this as we move into a time of worship. If we just consider Jesus, okay, how good our God is, that in spite of the pain that we find ourselves so oftentimes in, He is a God that steps into it to free us from it. That the pain is not what has to define us. It's the resurrection that ought to define us. Because you guys think about it this way. At the end of the day is this. We've got eternity. We've got Jesus. That's progress. That's the progress we're looking for. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. If you're here and you just got stuff going on in your life, man, you, got, you need prayer for things, we've got some people over there that are going to be available to pray with you. Guys, bottom line is this. As a church, I want to be a church that's about the progress of the gospel, communicating, living out the gospel in a way that's tangible. Some of you who are believers, you need to hear the message of the prophet. Stop building a life for yourself. Step out of yourself. Step out of a God of comfort and serve a God that's dynamic, that's not about Himself, that is about a love that overflows and pours itself out for the good of others. That's the dynamic God of the Bible. It does so in such extreme ways that He steps into our world to save us. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We're going to pray and uh, also just ask God for help to worship Him. Really, it's a joyful time. and just that we would see God as good, love Him, worship Him, respond to Him proper. Jesus, thank You for the cross. We commit ourselves to You now. We just ask You for forgiveness for things that we just need to have release from. We devote ourselves to You. We give You this time. Be glorified in it, we pray. We receive our tithes and our offerings joyfully. We just love You. We want to be on mission with You, Jesus. We don't want to live shallow, selfish lives. We know that progress will bring about pain and joy. But it's a pain and joy, Jesus, that you yourself had experienced that you call us to follow you with. We look to you, we cling to you, we love you.